Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday and just ahead this hour. The Trump Town Hall, the former U.S. president taking an array of questions before a live CNN audience. He refused to admit defeat in the 2020 election. He also declined to say if he wanted Ukraine to win the war. He didn't say he wanted Russia to win, though, but he did emphasize the need for a settlement to save lives in the conflict. And on the debt ceiling, Trump saying he does not think a default will happen because the Democrats will, quote, cave to Republican demands for massive spending cuts. And if not, he says, do a default. All the details right ahead. And speaking of the debt drama, President Biden and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sounding the alarm again, warning of the dangers to the global economy and the hit to American credibility, too, if the U.S. effectively sleepwalks, my words, not theirs, into a debt default. Janet Yellen speaking at the G7 summit in Japan. Plus, inflation nation. This time it's the Bank of England raising interest rates for the 12th meeting in succession, with inflation still above 10%. That's five times higher than central banks' targets. The Bank of England raising rates another quarter of a percentage point and hinting of more rate hikes to come. Just compare and contrast that 10% plus UK inflation rate to the US consumer price index. That's now below 5%. Of course, it's still stubbornly high, but low enough for the Federal Reserve to hit the pause button on hikes. At least we think so. Now, just released data backing up that pause scenario too. Prices at the factory gate rising 2.3% in April. That's down from the previous month's levels and below expectations. The market response, let me give you a look. Well, kind of muted. U.S. stock market futures and European shares, as you can see, they're mixed but tilted to the downside. Fresh weakness in U.S. regional banks weighing once again on sentiment. And Disney also pressuring the U.S. blue chips too. An earnings report filled with both Disney pluses and some minuses. Its shares set to fall some 5% there, as you can see, in early trade. Tim Nalan, senior media tech analyst at Macquarie, will join us shortly to explain all the details. And also today, a softer close over across Asia, keeping with the inflation theme, the Chinese consumer price index falling to its lowest level in more than two years. That's up a muted tenth of a percent rise last month and well below expectations. If you kept up with that, you're doing better than me. We've got a lot to get to this hour. And we do begin in New Hampshire and the Trump Town Hall, in which the former president refused to admit, as I mentioned, that he lost the 2020 election. He also declined to say whether he wanted Ukraine to win the war with Russia, though he did say he wanted the conflict to end and to save lives. Jeff Zeleny has all the details. Former President Donald Trump picked off right where he left off lying about the 2020 election. That was a rigged election, and it's a shame that we had to go through it. It's very Trump bad. made clear his 2024 presidential bid would follow the same script of his two previous campaigns. 
presenting himself as a defiant messenger, unburdened by facts and unwilling to move on. Will you suspend polarizing talk of election fraud during your run for president? Yeah, unless I see election fraud. If I see election fraud, I think I have an obligation to say it. He falsely said Vice President Mike Pence could have acted to overturn the election results as the vote was certified on January 6th. Trump said he did not owe Pence an apology for failing to call off supporters who threatened his life as they stormed the building. No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. My question to you is, will you pardon the January 6 rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one, because a couple of them, probably they got out of control. The audience of Republican voters at St. Anselm College applauded for much of the night. Even as Trump belittled and demeaned former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll, a day after a New York jury found him liable of sexually abusing and defaming her. I swear to I have no idea who the hell, she's a Mr. whack President, job. Pressed by Caitlin Collins about whether the verdict would deter women from voting for him, he said this. No, I don't think so. Because Yet some Republicans believe otherwise, like New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who is considering a presidential bid of his own. If you're a suburban mom, all these voters that Republicans are trying to bring back into the mix, I don't see any of them being convinced by anything because it was just kind of a same old regurgitation. Seven months before voting begins in the Republican presidential primary, Trump is leading the field, even as he faces multiple legal challenges over interfering in the 2020 election and more. I just want to find... Once again, he struck a defensive tone about that now infamous call to the Georgia Secretary of State searching for votes to put him over the top against Joe Biden, who narrowly won the state. That election was rigged. And if this call was bad, why didn't him and his lawyers hang up? How dare you say that? This was a perfect Well, they were clearly call. concerned enough they recorded the call. He brushed aside questions about another probe involving classified documents taken to Mar-a-Lago. When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified what do you mean, not really? after. Not, not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. I have the right. That, of course, remains an open question and a key part of a federal investigation. Trump took personal credit for the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, citing his three appointments to the high court. I was very honored to do it. But he repeatedly dodged questions about whether he would sign a federal abortion ban. I'm looking at a solution that's going to work. Very complex issue for the country. You have people on both sides of an issue. On foreign policy, Trump once again showed his affinity for Russian President Vladimir Putin, declining to call for his punishment for leading the invasion of Ukraine. If you say he's a war criminal, it's going to be a lot tougher to make a deal to get this thing stopped. He also declined to say who he wants to prevail in the war despite the U.S. and allies investing billions to help Ukraine defeat Russia. Do you want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people. Jeff Zelandy reporting there. Now, some breaking news into CNN. Pakistan's Supreme Court has ruled that the arrest of former Prime Minister Imran Khan on Tuesday was illegal. That overturns an earlier lower court ruling. CNN's Sophia Saifi is in Aslamabad for us. Sophia, what more do we know on this ruling and does that mean he'll be released or what have we heard so far? 
Julia, it's been a very tumultuous 48 hours sure. in Pakistan. We've just been uh, monitoring the Supreme Court of the country, and we've only just found out uh, that the Supreme Court's Chief Justice, the Chief Justice of Pakistan, has issued orders that Imran Khan's arrest was illegal. Now, legally, that would mean that he is being released, but we will have to confirm uh, whether those orders have been issued. Uh, what has happened in the past couple of days is that Imran Khan was taken very forcefully by paramilitary troops while he was getting his biometrics done with another court hearing at the Islamabad High Court on Tuesday afternoon. He was kept in custody with the National Accountability Bureau. Uh, many protests happened across the country. Imran Khan's own party has issued an order preventing any of Imran Khan's supporters to come out towards the Supreme Court. There are attempts being made for some semblance of calm in the country after two days of cities burning, of military installments being set on fire, the homes of military officers being set on fire. The military has been called in for security purposes in the federal government as well as in different provinces of the country. We're still waiting to see whether Imran Khan will be shown to the media. We have, we did know that about two hours ago, the Supreme Court heard an appeal by Imran Khan's lawyers about whether it was legal for Imran Khan to be apprehended uh, in the way that he was rather forcefully by hundreds of paramilitary troops. We do know that the three-member jury had said even before Imran Khan was summoned to the Supreme Court that the way that Imran Khan was arrested was highly uh, problematic and we're now just going to have to wait to see whether this will bring some calm to a very fraught political situation here in Pakistan or will it complicate things further. Julia? Yeah, so the Supreme Court, they're ruling that Imran Khan's arrest earlier this week was illegal. The question to your point now is legally, does that mean that they are going to release him? We shall wait and see. Sophia, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that report there. And if we get any further information, we will bring it to you. Let's move on. It was a magically mixed earnings report for Disney. The company said it lost 4 million paid subscribers on its streaming channel, Disney Plus, during the second quarter. With a firmer eye, though, on margins and profitability, financial losses narrowed to just above $660 million as the company focused on charging more for subscriptions, cutting marketing expenditures and looking to boost advertising. Tim Nalan, senior media tech analyst at Macquarie, joins us now. Uh, Tim, great to have you with us, as always. The good news on the streaming side of the business, as we've described, is we saw losses at, what, the slimmest level that we've seen in the last six quarters. And I guess the good news is they did it with less subscribers. But there's some bad news, surely, in there. How material? Yes, well, it was, um, as you said, I think it was a mixed report. I think um, subscriber losses for the second quarter in a row is obviously not a good thing. Part of that was on the price increase, which led to a little bit of churn. I think part of it was also just the content slate, which should get better into the second half of the year. But Disney is talking about U.S. and Canada direct-to-consumer subscribers being again, you know, perhaps down in the next quarter before they pick up after that. So this is a, a key metric that investors look for is the subscriber numbers. Now, the ARPU or the, you know, the revenue they're, they're generating per uh, user is going up, and that's, that's certainly positive. Um, and the advertising tier that they've launched is beginning to work. It's beginning to attract more users. And they even said that it's um, a net positive 
to their uh, to their revenue versus the ad free tier. And they're going to be rolling out uh, an ad supported tier uh, in Europe later this year. So, you know, really quite mixed results. I would say, you know, the, the losses are a key metric that investors are looking at as well. Uh, this is the second straight quarter of much less bad losses. So minus 650 million in operating income in the quarter. Uh, next quarter will be down a little bit from that again. It's not a linear progression upward. But, um, you know, I think you you kind of mentioned that the key items here, it's the subscriber numbers, and then it's the operating losses, which are getting better, but are still down. So it's it's, like you said, a very mixed quarter for Disney. Yeah. And your um, choice of words there, I think, was perfect because I was struggling as well. Less bad losses. Um, we sort of have to keep that in mind. And we're more sensitive, I think, more sensitive than ever, actually, about um, key metrics like profitability, which is a good thing. Um, I just wondered more broadly about the profit plan. You know, when you read that a company saying that they're going to cut back on content, they're going to sell more ads in a market that you could argue is, is saturated, although they said they're just scratching the surface there, um, and charge higher subscriptions. Um, I sort of wonder if whether, if that's the right plan. Is that perhaps the only plan that they have here, the only option? Well, I think Disney has a lot of options. Um, I, I think um, subscriber numbers can increase again. A lot of that depends on the content slate. I mean, you'll have things like, you know, the Avatar 2 film hitting the Disney Plus streaming service uh, in, in a matter of months. And so that, that alone can help boost subscribers. More content coming out. They're being smarter about their content investments after doing what, you know, all of their competitors did over the last several years, which is just create tons and tons of content to attract subscribers. Now the focus shifts more toward um, uh, generating a profit. They've been uh, pretty firm in, in stating they will get to break even in the direct-to-consumer business by uh, the end of fiscal 24. So it's about six quarters from now. Um, they've got a big cost savings plan going on. They actually indicated last night they may um, exceed their $5.5 billion worth of cost savings. Um, and the advertising tier, I think, is very important for Disney. Um, we don't have any, uh, a lot of detail on it yet. But um, it's, it's using smarter data, using um, automated ad buying processes. It allows Disney to generate a lot more advertising revenue on that subscriber base. So for Disney Plus subscribers, you can get an advertising uh, tier, which is probably going to stay at a lower price, certainly relative to the ad-free uh, price, which is going to go up. Uh, I think they indicated quite a bit more uh, into the back half of this year and the next year. So there are ways that they can... Uh, um, um, you know, manipulate their their uh, their subscribers to uh, so sign on to the right types of services, generate the right types of advertising revenue. I think there is upside for Disney over time, um, but the next quarter, still next quarter, is yeah, not not so great. Yeah, but I think your point is that um, the focus now is on quality rather than quantity in the um, content production that they're, that they're creating. And I think that has to be the case for, for all of these um, players. If there's one section of the business, and it's, I'm sort of remiss that I haven't mentioned it already, is the, the parks and the experiences business. I don't I sort of think that this is underestimated and an undervalued part of the business looking at this performance. If you're looking for some kind of um, consumer slowdown, you're, you're not seeing it in these numbers. What do you make of that segment of the business? And you can sort of tie that in on the back end to, to what your price target is for Disney at this moment. 
Right. So the uh, parks business grew, I think it was 17 percent in terms of revenue in the quarter. Uh, operating income was up, I believe it was 23 percent, if I remember correctly. Um, so that's good, strong growth. Now, we're coming out of, um, you know, the COVID, you know, rebound that began maybe last summer. So the growth should moderate from here. Um, but that's still very, very strong growth. And they particularly highlighted the international parks uh, with new attractions opening in many parks, uh, still many more to open and with uh, the COVID restrictions easing in a number of, of their park locations. So um, parks is still a very important driver for Disney. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mid to high 20s uh, EBITDA margin business for them. Um, and they're very um, confident in the long-term ongoing uh, growth of this business. Um, so basically, um, you know, it does work into the valuation. Um, you know, you can apply some of the parts metric to Disney. You get plenty of upside. Our target is $125. Um, so get 25 or so percent upside from here. Um, we just think, you know, Disney is um, a virtuous circle of the IP, the content, the consumer engagement, the parks, um, obviously the, the uh, streaming business that people are signing up for. So everything sort of rolls together. This has always been Disney's business model. Um, they're moving through some transitions now. Parks is fortunately through those TV transitions. Parks is, is a very stable and positive growth driver for them. Yeah, so a mixed quarter, but still a magical kingdom. I think that's the message. Tim Darlin, great to have you with us, Senior Media Tech Analyst at Macquarie. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Janet Yellen reiterating her dire warning to U.S. lawmakers. A default on U.S. obligations would produce an economic and financial catastrophe. It would spark a global downturn that would set us back much further. It would also risk undermining U.S. global economic leadership and raise questions about our ability to defend our national security interests. Yeah, the credibility point, I think, a vital one. The U.S. Treasury Secretary was speaking there at the G7 finance ministers meeting in Japan. And next week, we'll bring together heads of state, including U.S. President Joe Biden. The venue, Hiroshima, is a symbolic choice, considering that nuclear disarmament is also on the agenda. Leaders will also tackle the war in Ukraine, energy security, food security and action, further action on climate change. And joining us now is Ambassador Mikio Mori. He's the Consul General of Japan in New York. Ambassador, fantastic to have you with us. Clearly much to discuss and many where the United States in particular and Japan are very well aligned. Can we start on the war in Japan and the message, I think, of solidarity that your prime minister has mentioned heading into this meeting? Well, good morning, Julia, and good morning, everybody. Uh, this is a, a very prime, very much prime opportunity for Japan to present what we think, what we we are thinking about uh, uh, not only Japanese uh, peace and prosperity, but the global uh, peace and prosperity, of course. Uh, the uh, summit venue, uh, which which will be held exactly one one week, one week and one day uh, from today, uh, will be hosted in, in Hiroshima city, which is the hometown of uh, Prime Minister Kishida. And there, uh, Japan, along with uh, other G7 allies, uh, intend to send out a message to the world that we need to uh, consolidate our own solidarity uh, to tackle the challenges uh, the world now faces, uh, most notably uh, in various regions of the world, including East Europe or East Asia. Uh, we are facing challenges to uh, the international order based on rule of law. So 
or including uh, situation in Ukraine, uh, but but not limited to that. Uh, the G7 leaders, uh, I believe, will send out a message to the world that we need to uh, consolidate our positions uh, to protect the democracy and free world uh, based on uh, international order uh, uh, abiding by rule of law. Oh, and second message, of course, is uh, the, uh, our connection to the global south. Uh, various countries in so-called global south uh, are facing uh, challenges uh, because of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, uh, we are in a position uh, to work with them. Uh, that's why Prime Minister Kishida has visited various countries as G7 leader, uh, including India, African countries, uh, and uh, foreign, our foreign minister visited uh, uh, mm. Latin America to discuss what we can work, work together uh, towards uh, global peace. I think, um, and I'm sure you would agree, that part of the way that the G7 nations have agreed that uh, this war can be at least attempted to bring it to a swift end is via the use of sanctions. Um, Not perfect by any means, of course, but an effort to isolate Russia and make it harder for them to finance this war, which I think is why some nations have, have voiced concerns that Japan continues to buy things like timber, LNG and seafood. Can I ask you about that and whether Japan is at least considering alternative options that I think some nations, Canada is a great example, have presented? Mm -hmm. That's why G7 countries need to reach out to the global south. Uh, Some countries are are facing the challenges, not only from this war, but uh, also from uh, various other global issues, including climate change. Uh, so uh, Japan has taken comprehensive approach uh, to uh, address issues the global fa- South is facing, including climate actions uh, or uh, resilience assistance uh, to countries in, in the global South. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Kishida in India announced uh, his new uh, plan of uh, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific where uh, he, he announced uh, Japanese government's intention uh, to assistance uh, to extend assistance uh, to the countries in the global uh, south uh, uh, in, in private and uh, uh, public financing, uh, 75 billion US dollars uh, in next uh, uh, in next next few years, uh, and uh, this is uh, what we would like to share uh, with uh, G7 leaders at the summit. And also, uh, we are inviting uh, some of the uh, notable leaders from the global south to the summit, including Indian Prime Minister as well as the Australian, uh, mm. uh, Australian Vietnamese leader. Uh, so we, uh, uh, our true uh, intention uh, is uh, for the G7 summit is also to reconnect to the G7 world. Uh, Ambassador, I, I couldn't agree yes. more with you that um, the global south needs to be, I think, convinced. Um, in many ways to provide greater alignment with the view of, of the G7 with regards to the, the war in Ukraine. Can I ask about the point yeah. that you mentioned with regards um, the security arrangement in and across East Asia and the increasing concerns, I think, that you just expressed, that your prime minister has expressed. And mm-hmm. news even this week that Japan is considering uh, a NATO liaison office in Japan. How quickly mm-hmm. might that happen? And can you envisage Japan um, perhaps one day being part of NATO? Um, 
I, this is my personal opinion, but uh, I, of course. Uh, this is a very difficult question uh, about Japan to be uh, militarily aligned uh, to uh, mm. other countries except the United States uh, because uh, we have certain uh, certain limitation uh, in terms of uh, national defense uh, when it comes to uh, our constitutional obligation. Um, and uh, uh, when uh, we need to uh, protect uh, the peace and uh, prosperity in, in, in the world, as well as uh, in the region, we need to work closely with, uh, uh, with, with allies, uh, including the United States. And we'll see what that brings ambassador in the future. I think that was a yes. um, diplomatic response and that is um, your, your role, <laughs> certainly. Um, yes, yeah. we are three days out, I believe, from celebrations of Japanese culture here in New York City, which yes. I know you're also yeah. going to do a speech and you feel very passionately about. What will that mean and what mm -hmm. will that bring? And um, what food, of course, should I be, um, should I be eating for that celebration? Well, well, uh, this is uh, appreciation of uh, Japanese community to the New York City as well as uh, to the citizens of the United States, uh, who are who have been excellent host for uh, many many Japanese populations as well as Japanese Americans. So we will bring about uh, various aspects of Japanese culture, uh, including animation, uh, pop culture, music, uh, or dancing. Uh, and and uh, some even some of the anime characters uh, will, will march together. Also, uh, we would uh, include uh, various aspects of American culture uh, and uh, Asia Asian American culture into uh, our parade. So you will uh, you will come come and find what Japanese people can bring about to the New York City. And you mentioned about the food. This parade is quite unique, uh, which is combined with so-called street fair, uh, where we have 23 tenths of uh, Japanese food, uh, including our daily uh, daily enjoyment of uh, uh, such popular Japanese foods as ramen, okonomiyaki, uh, Japanese version of pancake, or, or <laughs> octopus ball. <laughs> so uh, please come and join. Uh, May the 13th, uh, Saturday, uh, on Central Park West, uh, between 80th 80 Street and 70, uh, 67th Street. Fantastic. And we've just been showing some of the pictures of last year, too. So if you're not sold, I'm sure you are now. <laughs> um, Ambassador, thank you for your time. Japan's Consul General in New York. Yeah, there, Ambassador my pleasure. Thank you, very much. thank you, sir. Okay, an update on the situation in Islamabad now. Pakistan's Supreme Court has ordered the release of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. He was arrested on Tuesday on corruption charges. The nation's High Court has ruled that arrest was illegal. We're going to show you at any moment live pictures outside of that court. We do not yet know if we'll see Imran Khan come out, but we will bring you the latest and those images when we see it. Welcome back to First Move. Islamic Jihad has fired more than 500 rockets towards Israel over the past two days. Israel says around one-fifth have fallen short, including two that killed four civilians, a claim the militant group denied. Israeli strikes on the enclave have left at least 25 people dead, several of them civilians, according to authorities in Gaza. 
Islamic Jihad says the head of the rocket unit was among those killed. Elliot Gokin joins us now from Jerusalem. Elliot, this is the kind of escalation I think you were fearing yesterday. I don't think anyone doubted, Julia, that we were going to uh, see this kind of escalate to a degree, although there were hopes last night and certainly rumours swirling that Egypt was on the cusp of brokering a ceasefire between Israel and Islamic Jihad. But those hopes eventually turned to naught. And so we've got a similar pattern today as we did yesterday, albeit with a slower pace, actually, of rockets being fired from the Gaza Strip towards Israel. And so the result of that is that we have seen 550 rockets or so as of a couple of hours ago that have been fired over the last couple of days uh, towards Israel. As you said in your introduction, about a fifth of those falling short. Israel saying uh, that in a couple of those instances, four civilians were killed, among those three children, including a 10-year-old girl. Uh, as I said, Islamic Jihad denies that. They said that Israel's claims are a lie. Uh, but certainly Israel is saying and is, is continuing uh, strikes on the Gaza Strip, on uh, Islamic Jihad militants, whether it's mortar launchers, rocket launchers, weapon storage facilities, or wherever it thinks that it needs to strike. It says that so far in in this campaign, it has struck 166 targets and that at least 12 of those 25 people that you say uh, were killed were belonging to militant groups. We assume Islamic Jihad because Israel maintains that Hamas, the much larger, more powerful militant group that controls the Gaza Strip, uh, Israel says is not involved, even though Hamas says otherwise. Now, there are still hopes that at some point and an expectation that at some point a ceasefire will come through, probably brokered by Egypt. The United States is also being kept abreast of developments. Uh, Israel's Defense Secretary uh, Yoav Gallant, the Minister of Defense, uh, spoke with his counterpart in the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, last night to tell him. And even though uh, Yoav Gallant's mother passed away overnight as well, he remains very much in control and in charge of uh, this uh, current round of fighting between Israel and the militants of Islamic Jihad. But for now, Julia, no sign of an end to, it, to, to, to this fighting. Israel continues to strike targets. The pace of rocket fire from Gaza appears to be slowing, but there are still rockets being fired towards Israel. And those communities, certainly around the Gaza Strip in southern Israel, remain pretty much on lockdown. Julia? Elliot, Elliot Gok in there. Thank you so much for that. Now, the boss of the Wagner Group has been talking again about what he sees as a deteriorating situation for Russian forces, saying that the Russian brigade has, quote, fled the city of Bakhmut, allowing Ukrainians to seize kilometers of territory. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are preparing for a long-awaited counteroffensive in the south and east. President Volodymyr Zelensky has said his country needs, quote, a bit more time before launching that counteroffensive as it waits for the delivery of more military aid from the West. Sam Kiley joins us now live from Kyiv, where he sat down for a one-on-one -on -one with Ukraine's nuclear energy agency chief. Sam, always great to have you with us. A vital conversation, I think, to be having, not only because of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant's location on the front lines, but also to glean some information about what Russian forces are doing in and around that. What can you tell us about that conversation? Well, you're absolutely right. Zaporizhia nuclear power station is on frontline location itself. Uh, and that, of course, if there is going to be a Ukrainian offensive, is likely to put it at the eye of the storm. Now, what's very interesting is that the head of Ukraine's Atomic en Energy Authority uh, is saying here, or told me today, uh, Julia, that he wasn't that worried about it being the site of any kind of attack by the Ukrainians at any rate. At any rate, and he had seen signs that the Russians were preparing to pull out. This is what he said. 
they are probably uh, right now are uh, trying to, to be prepared for quick uh, getting out of there. And also, uh, personnel of Rosatom recently made this drill on the very quick packing of everything and just getting into the cars and get out of the plants. Our people could witness a decrease in this numbers of, of militaries in the Ragadara. If you had to say the danger that the power station is in on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put it? They still have like nuclear, uh, nuclear workers and technically these people understand the risks. But there are a lot of militaries and there are also like thousands of militaries and there who do not understand anything. So this will depend only how, how actually powerful these uh, Rosatom engineers not allow these militaries to do some evil things with, with the reactors. So are you saying to your government, please do not have a, an offensive in this area? I mean, there is a, a, a responsibility that they have to preserve the integrity, even if it is occupied by the Russians. Ukrainian military, I mean, they are quite intelligent not to do that. And uh, so, and it is uh, even uh, not needed. Because uh, what you need is uh, just to cut uh, the connection uh, between uh, the Parisian nuclear power plant and crime. Now, uh, that thrust that he's talking about there, Julia, sort of a, a, a thrust on the southern front towards Crimea, could arguably leave the Zaporizhia nuclear power station in Russian hands, but disconnected from the rest uh, of their support. But what he's hinting at there is then what happens? Would the Russians do something absolutely crazy if they're still in charge of a nuclear web, uh, facility, or would they uh, surrender? His assumption is that they would surrender, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating reading between the lines in a few ways on this about the potential timing and what we're already seeing. If I overlay that with some of the comments that we got from the Wagner chief suggesting that when Zelensky said, look, we need a little bit more time here to begin the counteroffensive, he said the line, the counteroffensive is in full swing. Can you just pull together all the threads of the information that we're hearing and give me your perspective from spending so much time there? Where are we on this counteroffensive? I don't, there is no question that uh, I'm in, in touch with commanders across Ukraine and the president has said so. There is no counteroffensive. There is uh, yet uh, no real signs of any kind of softening up process either. I think that anything that uh, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group says must be taken with a bucket of salt. Obviously, Julia, he is uh, propagandizing. Essentially, what he's saying in Bakhmut is making up excuses for how come the lack of the, there was such poor coordination between the Russian army and the mercenary group that the Ukrainians were able to step into a gap in the front line uh, and invest it, uh, taking some two kilometers in what was just a, a, a mess up by uh, the combined forces of the Russians there. I think more broadly, though, the anticipation of this offensive uh, has meant that the Russians are, there's no doubt about this, they are evacuating officials from towns like Enochada. They're eva evacuating particularly Ukrainian officials who've uh, collaborated with Russia in the occupied territories. And they're also moving children uh, back, they would say, this is the Russians would say, to safety in places like Crimea and even further on into Russia proper in uh, Rostov-on-Don. So in that context, there's certainly a perception on the Russian side that an offensive is imminent. But there's no real signs, well, there are no actual signs of a, an offensive or indeed the softening up process 
yeah, basically the, the Ukrainians will launch the offensive, I think, with some considerable vigor when the time is right and military programming uh, never has a fixed date. Fascinating. So they, um, there's no need for speculation at this stage. When it happens, we'll know. Um, Sam Kiley, always great to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Clean energy solutions coming to Africa one refuse truck at a time. My next guest celebrating a major deal to retrofit a thousand refuse collection vehicles starting in Ghana, replacing polluting combustion engines with zero emission electric motors. The company says this will stop 400,000 metric tons of CO2 being emitted over five years. And it's a pollution solution which could be scaled up around the world. Xeronox specializes in retrofit existing vehicles with battery tech and says customers range from Los Angeles Airport to Oprah Winfrey's ranch. Von Christensen is the co-founder and CEO and he joins us now. Von, fantastic to have you on the show. So we've sort of given a broad brush explanation of, of what your company does, but it's not just about an African solution, though this deal seems pretty exciting. Walk us through this first. Yes, no, it's a very exciting deal. It's uh, a collaboration with the Jaspong group of companies in Ghana, Africa. And they are a company with a lot of subsidiaries, their largest of which is ZoomLion that does waste management. And we've went, entered into a, uh, an agreement with them to electrify a thousand of their refuse trucks. And the first one, the alpha version, was publicly announced last week. Congratulations on that. Just explain what your target vehicles are, because it's not just about refuse trucks, as I mentioned, or garbage trucks. Um, you also can do farm equipment, um, forklift trucks as well. That's correct. So our focus is on off-highway vehicles. In fact, we've entered into a business combination agreement with the SPAC Growth for Good Acquisition Corporation. And in that process, we've been informed that we will be the first publicly traded company that focuses on electrifying off-highway vehicles. What's the cost to adapt these vehicles versus, for example, buying a new um, electric one, if indeed they're available? Because with a forklift truck, I'm not sure I've ever seen one. Um, just talk to us <laughs> about the, the cost to, to do it versus if you can buy one of these vehicles versus the cost savings and how quickly it pays back or at least breaks even. You bet. So the, the cost for electrifying a vehicle is approximately half the cost of a new vehicle. And a lot of that cost is related to the battery. Um, but the return on investment is also tremendous. And for instance, with the refuse truck um, electrification project with the Jaspong Group, their return on investment is expected to be just a little over two years. And part of that is because the fuel in Africa is a lot dirtier. And because of that, they require more, um, more maintenance, more service. Also, it's, the fuel is more expensive. And the flip side of that, and part of the reason why this collaboration with uh, Jaspong in Africa is, is a perfect fit for electrification is because they also actually have a cleaner energy grid than we do here in California, where we're yeah. located, because, uh, because of the hydro dam power that they have. That's such a great point. What about charging infrastructure, though, in these cases? Because the question always comes back to the ability to charge. And in these cases, I guess, charging overnight. 
That's correct. So the way we design these electrification e-kits um, is that they're designed to be able to perform the full duty cycle during the day and be able to recharge at night. Part of the solution that Zero Knox provides to our customers is not only the electrification, but also the charging infrastructure and the support and service that's needed to truly be an effective and efficient electrification solution. And so in addition to the thousand truck refuse truck electrification project that we're doing which is Spong, we've also entered into a joint venture with them to bring electrification solutions, including infrastructure, including uh, electric sedans and UTVs and forklifts to the Ghanaian and West African um, uh, industry. You know, back in March, I read that you'd produced 800 vehicles or at least adapted 800 vehicles over the last two years. Can you just bring me up to date with with what you've done and the cost of the company? Because you mentioned there in the introduction that you're um, and are involved with a special purpose acquisition company, which for my audience so that they understand, and we've talked about this a lot, it's been quite hair-raising over the last 18 months or so um, as a way to, to raise money. Are you profitable? What kind of cash burn? What are the challenges? Because I think this is something certainly that the whole industry is focused on. We love the idea of electrification. The cost of achieving it is something else. Uh, that's true. And there's no doubt that that is uh, one of the challenges in this space, but it's also the, the great opportunity. Our philosophy here at Zero Knox is of course, we need to provide a sustainable solution that's clean for the environment, but we need to do so in a way that's economical and mm-hmm. high performing. And when we look at where we're located here in the Central Valley of California, it's an ag community. And that's those were our initial investors. That was the initial vision is to help electrify the agricultural space. But as we've gotten further into this industry, we've realized it's not just agriculture, it's mining, it's construction, it's the ports, it's the railroads. All of these uh, parts of our economy need to electrify and they all want to electrify, but they need to do so in a way that is going to be economical and that's going to continue to perform at the high level that the internal combustion engine vehicles do. Yeah, it has to. Otherwise, we're not going to see a, a tipping point and a push towards this. Um, as always, I have 20 more questions than I have time for. Vaughn, you're going to come back and we're going to track your progress. <laughs> and I look forward to I would love to, to do soon. so. Great. It's a date. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Von Christensen there, the co-founder and CEO of Zero Knox. Welcome back to First Move and some hard times for SoftBank, the Japanese tech giant's vision fund unit, losing more than $2 billion in the latest quarter, even as the broader tech market bounced back. SoftBank had promised better returns for its once high-flying investment arm. But for now, the blurry vision continues. Claire Sebastian joins me now. The good news is, Claire, you never have blurry vision. Um, But I think the emphasis has to be on what I just mentioned there. It's fascinating that the vision fund continues to lose money when the broader tech market's rising. It sort of suggests to me that they hadn't written down a lot of those private investments to the level perhaps that they should have done and are still doing it. Yeah, I think to some extent, Julia, the timing was not on their side here. If you look at the reporting period, tech stocks as a whole sort of continue to fall over that period, even though for the most part of this year, they've been on the rebound. So the reporting period didn't really capture the full extent of the tech rebound that we've seen 
in recent uh, months. So that is one thing uh, that, it, that hasn't been so good for them. And, and you can see it in the numbers. Two billion was the loss for the Vision Funds, or just over two billion in the fourth quarter. But for the full year, it was 39 billion. So you definitely get some sense of improvement towards the end of the reporting period. If you drill down into some of the uh, biggest sort of contributors to those losses uh, that they admitted in their filing, some of them are already showing signs of rebounding. Things like SenseTime, the Chinese AI company, DoorDash. All of those look like they're coming back up, that they could show improvement for the company in the future. But we do still see in there vestiges uh, of that past strategy, the, the sort of hallmark Massasan hype feeding uh, bubble investing type strategy. One of the biggest contributors to the loss for the second Vision Fund, Vision Fund 2, was WeWork. So I think that sort of tells you uh, that that sort of hangover is still ongoing for SoftBank. But overall, the company trying today to make the, fun, to make the point that you know, their loss uh, is narrowing, that the worst may be over. And I think if the market continues in this direction, they may potentially be right. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I saw a brief note from Asymmetric Advisors based in uh, Singapore, and they said unlisted names account for something like 60% of total investments, and they'd not been marked down by more than 20%. And even the CFO acknowledged that they've had to mark down the valuations of almost 350 companies. However, to your point, Claire, Masayoshi said does not stay down for long. And listening into a little bit of the call here and listening to what the CFO said, they're having sleepless nights with excitement about the possibility of artificial intelligence. What more did they have to say about that? Because that's got his hallmark, to your point, all over it. Yeah, so you'll remember that the Second Vision Fund was actually launched with a view to being uh, something that would sort of progress AI into the mainstream. They are clearly now doubling down on that, in particular generative AI as a result of ChatGPT, the CFO, uh, saying that that has really pushed it into the mainstream, that Masasan, who he quoted directly, uh, saying that he's just as excited about that as he was uh, about the sort of dawn of the internet. So you get a sense there uh, of what's going on. They have said that they're in defense mode, that they want to be very careful with their investments. But he did say that they, their cash position has improved. They have enough cash on hand, he said, to go on offense for the right opportunity. And clearly, uh, that is going to be an AI. So I think with the landscape here, look, they managed to reduce their loss by coming out uh, partially of Alibaba, other stakes like Uber, the past uh, investments, the previous landscape for SoftBank. And I think the future will definitely be moving towards, in particular, generative AI. Yeah, I was about to say, no one cares about the losses when you're making lots of profits on other things, um, crystallized or otherwise. I guess that's the key. Um, Claire Sebastian. Great to have you with us. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 